Namayang Chaturapamanya Obhasanang Karomase Meta Sahagate Nacheta Sa Ekang Disang Bharitava Viarati Tata Dutiang Tata Tatiang Tata Chaturtang Itiyo Dhammado Dhiriyang Sabati Samba Tata Yasabhavandang Lokang Meta Sahagate Chetasa Vipulena Mahagate Na Apamane Na Awe Rena Hambaya Pajena Paritava Viharati Garuna Sahagate Na Chetasa He Kang Disang Baritava Viharati Tata Dutiyang Tata Tatiyang Tata Jatutang Itiyo Dhammado Thiriya Sabati Samba Tata Yasabhavandha Lokang Karuna Sahagate Na Chetasa Vipole Na Mahagate Na Apamane Na Awe Rena Ambayapa Jena Bharitava Viharati Mudita Sahagate Na Chetasahe Desang Bharitava Viharati Tata Dutiyang Tata Tatiyang Tata Chaturtang Itiyo Dhammado Tiriyang Sabati Samba Tata Yasambhavandang Lok Mudita Sahagate Na Chetasa Vipulena Mahagate Na Apamane Na Awere Na Hambaya Pajena Bharitava Viharati Upe Kasahagate Na Chetasahe Kang Disang Bharitava Viharati Tata Dutiyang Tata Tatiyang Tata Chatu Tangitiyo Dhammado Tiriyang Sabati Samba Tata Yasabha Vandang Lokang Upe Kasahagate Chetasa Vipole Namahagate Na Apamane Na Awere Na Hambaya Paje Na Paritava Viharati So today um, we'll be 
exploring uh, this particular kind of meditation practice. Um, probably most of you have read the, the little flyers, and, or maybe you just showed up. <laughs> uh, you were thinking, I'm Arjun Jamnian. So. <laughs> but, uh, he's up the hill. So. <laughs> um, so this uh, today we'll be exploring this particular kind of, of meditation practice um, uh, known as Nada Yoga or um, the meditation on the inner sound. Um, nada, by the way, um, this is the Sanskrit Nada, not the Spanish Nada. <laughs> but of course, as we will no doubt be running into during the day, there's a very interesting uh, confluence of meanings. So Nada in Sanskrit just means sound. Uh, well, of course, nada in Spanish means nothing. And uh, uh, we get a bit of mileage out of that as we go along. Uh, uh, the, um, to give a little bit of a background to this, to this uh, practice, um, this is uh, not a very commonly taught practice, in the, particularly in the Theravada Buddhist world. Um, probably Ajahn Sumedho is the uh, only person who is been actively teaching this uh, uh, in the, the last number of years. And uh, so those of you who've done retreats with him uh, or done the retreats with, with myself might be familiar with it, probably the rest uh, not so familiar through the Buddhist channel. But it's also a kind of practice that you find within uh, several other different uh, spiritual traditions, that you find it within the, the northern Buddhist tradition. Um, you also find uh, similar practices in the Hindu and uh, Sikh forms of, of meditation. And so um, really what I'm going to describe today is, is fundamentally what Ajahn Sumedho has, has taught me and what he sort of has discovered through his own practice and his own um, inquiries and, uh, and uh, the way I use it and, and the different um, teachings that I've picked up that seem to relate to it. So that um, basically this is the sort of uh, exclu- you know, the exemption clause <laughs> or the escape clause that uh, this is not particularly um, scriptural, uh, what we'll put across today, but more a, um, a methodology of practice that um, is referred to in many different traditions and is mostly being sort of refined or, or um, investigated through individual experience rather than um, having a... Um, a kind of particular, um, say, traditional practice coming through the Theravada line on this. So it's it's in that spirit that the the, the day is offered. Also, you know, to um, in the in the spirit, the Buddhist teachings are, are, are generally presented is that of of exploration. That what I say is offered for consideration. That you shouldn't take anything I say as as doctrinal or as things that you're supposed to believe or that are, are absolutely the way it is, you know, like some kind of dogmatic statement, but more um, I'll put out a, a bunch of themes and different approaches that we can all kind of pick up and, and look at and, and uh, explore and play with uh, during the day. And, um, and hopefully some of it will be meaningful and helpful. And that which isn't, then we can just leave that aside. And that which you're not quite sure about, just let it you know, hover. <laughs> The uh, to be decided, the TBD category, to be decided. Yeah. You can, I have a lot of things in my TBD file. 
So, um, to give a bit of a background to this practice, um, I first learned it from Ajahn Sumedho in the late 70s. Um, and uh, he had, um, he spent the first 10 years of his uh, meditation practice in Thailand, which um, you might not be, uh, those of you who haven't been in the Far East might not be aware, but um, Southeast Asia is extremely noisy. And not just traffic noise or um, uh, or a kind of um, amplified sound or, or people chattering, but um, just uh, there's a lot of life there. In fact, uh, Thailand is something like a, a sort of um, it's like living in a hot house uh, and or a petri dish. You know, everything flourishes <laughs> there, and so there's a tremendous amount of insect life. And so that the only time it ever gets quiet is sort of midday in the hot season. When everything is just shut down, in, including the monks, so <laughs> so that um, much of the time it's a very noisy uh, environment, a lot of insect noise, a lot of animal noise, and uh, the insects, particularly like a very raucous um, crickets and and um, cicadas and such like, and particularly at nighttime. And nighttime is when it's quite cool, and so you do a lot of your meditation at night, and so that's when all of the the insect noise is loudest. So um, it wasn't until um, Ajahn Sumedho came to England after 10 years or so of, of being in Southeast Asia and being in, even though he was in London, the first um, uh, monastery they had was in the middle of London, but um, uh, when they first had their first winter in England, and, and London is one of those strange capital cities that actually stops at night. It's like if you try and travel anywhere after 11.30 at night, it's really difficult to get around. Actually, you know, the, 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 it's not like New York, which never even takes a breather. It's like uh, it, it, it's, it's uh, quiet at nighttime, and so in the winter, then things are even more still. And he began to notice when he was um, uh, either sitting up late at night or, or early in the morning, they would go out for walks um, around the area. Um, he began to uh, to notice when he was in the early morning sitting or late at night or, or out. Um, on Hampstead Heath uh, in the cold, uh, frosty mornings, he began to notice this, this kind of uh, high-pitched tone, ringing tone in his hearing. And, um, and uh, as time went by, he began to notice it more and more, and he noticed that when he was meditating that he could hear it very clearly, and, that, uh, and he realized that even though um, uh, the, when there was noise around, the mind was, was distracted or tended to pick up on that. Even when there was noise around, he could still hear it. And he realized that perhaps this had been going on the whole time, but because there was such a racket going on in the forest in Thailand, he'd never really noticed it. And then he had a, a recollection of a time when actually he was in the U.S. Navy and suffering immensely. <laughs> And uh, his family had been very close to, uh, his parents were very devout Christians, and they were friends with these uh, Christian monks. And so one time when he was on shore leave, um, he, uh, um, unlike most American sailors, he went to stay in a monastery. <laughs> he was a very unusual character. So it was like the ship pulls into dock and immediately you hit the monastery. To, you know, the fleet's in. Go find the monks, you know. Um, anyway, he uh, he was very miserable in the navy, and um, and so he he went off to this this monastery, 
um, and was out walking in the hills there. And then, and then he was alone in uh, in the mountains. And um, he uh, suddenly found himself in this. Um, his mind kind of fell into this very blissful, clear state that it seemed like time stopped altogether. And his, there's this, uh, a great sense of of expansion and blissfulness, peacefulness. And uh, this sound and that uh, he recollected that at that time we had this very powerful experience that this sound was very, very loud. And because he, he was when he was in English, he thought, well, when have I heard this before? I know I've heard this sometime before. And he recollected that time um, in the 50s when uh, he it had been very strong for him. So he thought, well, maybe it's maybe it's not just something that's interrupting my meditation that I'm trying to get rid of, but maybe this is actually something to do with. Um, you know, wholesome states of mind, or maybe this is something you could focus on because it's certainly here, and um, and that was one of the most blissful, clear moments of my life. So it, it, it inspired him to investigate it and to explore it. So he did that uh, over the next few years and found that that he could use it as a meditation object, just just using the the listening to this this kind of subtle sound, and he began to notice he could hear it and. Um, uh, all the time, uh, it just took a little bit of of, uh, of extra effort. If there was you know, activity or or he was doing things, or there was conversation going on, he also surreptitiously developed it in uh, the um, uh, the kind of business meetings of the <laughs> the English Sangha Trust, the kind of the uh, organization that were, had invited him. They would have these these dreadful committee meetings, so he'd sit there looking interested. <laughs> Meanwhile, he was uh, tuning into the nada sound rather than the uh, points of debate. <laughs> this is not secret. This is he talks about that quite freely as well. So it's a very good uh, way of dealing with boring meetings. So um, anyway, he he uh, experimented with it for a couple of years and then um, decided to to start teach because he felt he kind of understood it and how it worked and he started to teach it. Do feel free to uh, find a place to this. There's quite a bit of room down the front here. Do come in. So um, then he started uh, to teach it as a, as a meditation method. And um, when uh, this was when we'd, we'd moved out of London and we had the first monastery in the south of England, the countryside had started up. So that's really when I first learned it, which was in, in probably late 79, early 80. And so since that time, for myself, I, I've tended to use it actually a lot more than mindfulness of breathing, um, even though I, I teach both kinds of, of practice. Um, I've, uh, I tend to, as a, as a personal practice, I use this uh, uh, a lot myself. Maybe you could make a little bit more space down the front here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so sometimes when, uh, when this is taught, or well, I'd say last April, Ajahn Sumedha was teaching this um, both on the 10-day retreat here and, and then a five-day retreat following that to the Spirit Rock teachers. And, and then people would say, well, is this, is this a Theravada practice? And he'd say, well, I'm a Theravadan <laughs> and I practice it. <laughs> so uh, um, it, it's... it's uh, uh, I'll, I'll go into the, the, the details of the practice you know, in, in due course, but for myself, uh, I found it very helpful. And also the, the whole spirit of 
the kind of tradition that we come from, the forest meditation tradition of Thailand and, and Ajahn Chah's lineage, um, that there's a very strong uh, tradition of, of, kind of what they call orthopraxy, like the way that you conduct yourself, the way you behave is very strictly controlled. And, um, but there's a great liberality in the kind of meditation practice that you do. There's not like an orthodoxy in, the, in what you're supposed to practice internally or what you're supposed to, or how you like to phrase the teachings for yourself. So there's a great range. If you've picked up different teachings or come across different expressions of the teachings by different Thai forest masters, there's a huge range of, of styles and, and, and methodologies that they, they pick up. So it's in that, that the scope of that, uh, the t- tradition that Ajahn Chah came from, that uh, there's a, there is really that, this isn't like being kind of totally... Uh, non-conformist or, or outrageous. It's actually within the scope of, well, if it works, it's the right thing. You know? And in fact, when Ajahn Sumedho first came to visit Ajahn Chah in 67, uh, he'd been doing a, a, a Chinese Buddhist, uh, a practice described by a Chinese meditation master, Xu Yun, using a, a form of inquiry into the question, who am I? And uh, a meditative inquiry. And when and Ajahn Chah had never even heard of this kind of practice before. And so Ajahn Sumedho was afraid that he was going to have to stop doing that and then follow Ajahn Chah's method. And, but Ajahn Chah said, well, what's the result of it? You know, uh, he asked him how he did it. And, and he said, well, what, what's the result? And he said, oh, it's very good. Um, and he said, so you know, you're, you're pleased with it and you have confidence in it? And he said, oh, yeah, it's, it's very good. He said, well, okay, we'll just carry on doing that, which you know, amazed him. Because it's like, hey, I'm, I'm joining up with this teacher and he's never even heard of this practice and he's saying, carry on, do that. So there is that liberality and kind of exploring. So that's the real the spirit and this is, this is passed on. So one of the reasons that I, I've, uh, to give a few reasons of how why I find it a helpful practice, um, using the faculty of hearing, um, uh, using that to the act of listening, uh, as the the doorway or the the focal point, it's it's helpful insofar as um, listening to the inner sound, which is like a, a, a sort of high pitched, subtle tone. Just because one's developing the act of of hearing, listening, then um, it becomes much easier to be able to listen to your own thoughts and listen to your own feelings and and uh, kind of hold them in an objective way, just as you would. You, you can listen to this, uh, you know, this inner sound, which is sort of featureless and, and not exciting and not, and not sort of interesting. It, um, we, one can easily transfer the act of listening to learning to listen to your own thoughts with the same kind of spirit. That it's just, oh, it's just that sound going on and on and on. Or I, um, uh, I gave a, well, on the retreat Ajahn Sumedho led in April, I gave a talk one night and I, the turkeys were really performing vigorously throughout the retreat and so that uh, I use the analogy of like listening to the mind like listening to the turkeys gobble 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 <laughs> and uh, that had a very profound effect on people it was quoted back to me numerous times <laughs> during the next few days we don't really think of, of relating to our own thoughts in terms of gobble 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 <laughs> we think that all our, our we tend to believe what, what we're thinking is being valid and true that if I have a um, a plan, or if I have a, a, a kind of a self-critical thought, or if I have a, 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 a judgment about someone else, we tend to think that's true. 
and we, we, we're not trained in, uh, culturally to regard our own thoughts as just the gobbling of the turkeys. Or like, I like to use the analogy of like listening to a radio in somebody else's car when you, you pull up at the, at the toll booth and you, it's not even your own radio, it's their radio. And it's just, well, what's that got to do with me or why is that significant? And learning to listen to our thoughts with that same kind of objectivity and, and ease, just not pushing them away, but not believing in them, not, not being dragged around by them either, just being able to, to receive them and attend to them. It's also interesting, like the French word for um, uh, to, to listen, attendre, to attendre is to, to, to attend, like this in a very act of attention is, is wedded with the, the uh, quality of, of listening. Also, the, um, the, because the, one of the main attributes that I find helpful is that um, in listening to the inner sound, whereas the breath, there's a certain measure of personal control that you can breathe deep or you can breathe shallow, you can, you can breathe, you can hold your breath or you can, there's a certain, I can decide what the breath will do. I can make it do this or do that to a certain extent. With the nada sound, there's no, you have no control. Um, and the only thing you can do, you have to combine a quality of relaxation and receptivity with the attention. You can't like decide to make it louder or make it quieter or, or, or like make it uh, find a particular tone inside it. You can't subject it to personal will. At least I can't. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years and still <laughs> I can't find the switch. You know, It's not there. And so that what that means is that it's um, the mind is very much drawn into this quality of of receptivity and a, and a sense of of um, uh, full attention, but without the exercise of a personal will or personal presence is is uh, very is very much um, supported. Another a little aspect that I'll mention first of all is um, that of uh, the energizing quality. So if people, when, once we start to, to do this kind of practice, or you, maybe many of you have already um, had some you know, experience of, uh, or have noticed the, the, the sort of inner sound, that we wonder, well, what is it? What is it, really? Yeah. And that uh, you find that many different spiritual traditions talk about it in, in different ways. And so, um, the, uh, uh, so the Greeks used to call it the music of the spheres. And um, the uh, other traditions will call it like the, the, uh, the, the sound of the universe or the universal vibration. Um, there's supposed to be a passage in the Bible, I haven't actually tracked it down, but it's supposed to be there, which says, uh, the coming of the Lord is attended by the sound of bees. But even if it doesn't say that, it should. So. <laughs> it's an apocryphal piece. So. <laughs> And uh, the um, so it's uh, to uh, and and you know a physiologist would say well it's just the um, the you know, firing of the nervous system, or um, other people would say well it's God whispering to you, or, um, but and we can is one is totally free to interpret it or name it in, in any kind of way that you like, just to let you know how I tend to hold it is it, to me it seems to be like uh, the, 
an attribute of the psychophysical energy system. You could call the chi or the prana and the, and the relationship of that to the nervous system. And we pick it up, we, we, we detect it through the faculty of hearing, but it's actually like a, 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 a sort of psychophysical energy in itself. And it's just we, we, we're picking up the, its resonance in the hearing faculty. Um, and in that respect, there was an interesting um, exchange when Arjun Sumedho was teaching this to the Spirit Rock teachers. Uh, Julie Wester, who, who does a lot, a lot of uh, body meditation and generally practices that and teaches that a lot, she's, she put up her hand and said, well, I can't hear it at all, but I can feel. It's what I'm, well, what you're describing is something I can feel in my body, but I don't hear it. And he said, well, that's, that's right. <laughs> That it's just the most, for most people, the most obvious way of picking up its presence is through the hearing. Um, but it's, it's, that's maybe just one way that it's sensed. But if you've developed more of, a, of, an, of another sense, like particularly, say, the body sense, then if you feel it as like a, a subtle vibration in the body, then that's where you can focus upon it. So she was using it as like the, using the, the physical vibration, or the, phys- the subtle physical sense as an object to focus on. But... I'll just, for, for simplicity's sake, just use the, the, uh, um, the quality of sound and its, and its attribute of sound during today. Uh, I thought I might read a, a few little quotations from different spiritual sources to um, uh, give you some of a, a sense for um, different aspects. And we'll pick these up and explore some of them during the course of the day. Um, one of them is uh, from just after the Buddha's enlightenment. Uh, when his first thought after his enlightenment was that there, this was far, not the Nada Yoga, but you know, his insight generally into Dhamma was far too subtle and impossible for anybody to understand. So he thought, well, there's no point even trying to teach this. It'll just be wearisome and difficult for me. And then uh, the Brahma god Sahampati then overheard this thought in the Buddha's mind and thought, no, <laughs> this can't be. The, the, this, is, this will be a terrible disaster that so many people will be lost. Many beings will be lost if the Buddha, the newly awakened Buddha doesn't teach. So then he came down from the, beamed down from the Brahma heavens and appeared in front of the Buddha and uh, begged him for the sake of those with a little bit of dust, just a little dust in their eyes, to teach what he understood. And so then the Buddha, as it said, uh, cast his, his eye around the world um, and saw that it was true. The Brahma God was right. There are, there are some beings, along with the ones who've got dense faculties and uh, who are uh, deeply enmeshed in samsara, there are also those with just a little bit of dust in their eyes and that um, uh, it's possible that they would understand. So he, on the basis of that, he decided to, to teach. And then he made this declaration. Um, the, uh, the doors of the deathless are open. Let, let those who hear um, act on their faith. Let those who can hear. Open for those who hear are the doors of deathlessness. Ye sotawanto pumunchantu sadhang. So the sotawanto is the, those, who, uh, those who hear, one who can hear. Then um, another interesting place where this came up, um, a number of years ago, Ajahn Sumedha was teaching this um, kind of practice on a a retreat he was leading at the City of 10,000 Buddhas. 
and um, he, uh, um, this is a Chinese uh, a monastery in the Chinese tradition up in uh, Mendocino County. Actually, they're the people that, that gave us half of the land where our monastery is. And um, he was uh, teaching this, this meditation on the Nada sound, and then one of the, um, the senior monks, after a few days of this, came up and said, you know something? I think you stumbled into the Shurangama Samadhi. And he said, what? <laughs> and he said, well, there's, um, there's this very key teaching that uh, our, um, our master has, has made a lot of. And his own teacher, Master Xu Yun, um, was, uh, uh, stressed this as one of the most important meditation teachings. And in the Shurangama Sutra, what happens is that, uh, amongst many other things, all the different bodhisattvas come up to the Buddha and then they describe their own method of enlightenment, the different kind of dharma doors they've used uh, to, to awaken. And each one of them comes up and describes their methodology. And the last one to come is, uh, to the Buddha is Avalokiteshvara, Guan Yin. This is Guan Yin. And so then, uh, and then the, the Buddha says to, to Guan Yin, so what is your methodology of, of enlightenment? And Guan Yin replies, um, uh, that uh, in, this, in the scripture, by the way, Guan Yin is a male. She had a sex change later on. So <laughs> she started out as a, as a he. he. She started out as a he. So, so uh, <laughs> see, it's not a new thing. <laughs> so uh, he described how he would sit on a cliff uh, by the sea and listen to the sound of the ocean. And then when the mind was focused on the sound of the ocean, then he would turn the hearing inward and listen to the, uh, the sound internally. And the expression was um, returning the hearing to hear the self-nature and the nature realizes the supreme way. And, um, and so uh, then the Buddha declares, well, this is the supreme method for enlightenment and congratulates Guan Yin as like saying this is of all the different methods of, of enlightenment this method of the, the entering the door of hearing is the, the most effective and supreme method and so then uh, this monk was saying they'd always been slightly puzzled as to exactly what it was they were supposed to be doing and no matter how much the master tried to explain they could never quite get it and uh, what this the Shuran, the Shurangama Samadhi was, because it was something to do with hearing and re, and turning the hearing inwards, um, and they could never quite understand it. And so he said, strangely enough, here's this Theravadan monk explaining us, explaining to us the sort of the 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 actual methodology of this this very practice that our own teachers have been trying to emphasize. So that was kind of uh, uh, interesting. So that was in the in the the uh, Chinese tradition. It's called the Shurangama Sutra. There's a translation of it by Charles Luke that um, is, I think, published by Riders. Then in the Upanishads, this is the Chandogya Upanishad, it says, Now the light which shines higher than this heaven, on the backs of all, on the backs of everything, in the highest worlds than which there are no higher, truly that is the same as the light which is here within a person. There is this hearing of it, when one closes one's ears and hears a sound, a roar as of a fire blazing.
And finally, from a more local um, avatar, this is from the Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac. The silence is so intense that you can hear your own blood roar in your ears. He's talking about the silence in the desert. The silence is so intense that you can hear your own blood roar in your ears. But louder than that by far is the mysterious roar, which I always identify with the roaring of the diamond of wisdom. The mysterious roar of silence itself, which is a great shh, reminding you of something you seem to have forgotten in the stress of your days since birth. I wished I could explain it to those I loved, to my mother, to Jaffe, but there just weren't any words to describe the nothingness and purity of it. Is there a certain and definite teaching to be given to all living creatures? Was the question probably asked to beetle-browed, snowy depunkera, and his answer was the roaring silence of the diamond. Is there a certain and definite teaching to be given to all living creatures? was the question probably asked to beetle-browed snowy Dipankara Buddha, and his answer was the roaring silence of the diamond. So those are a few uh, different uh, expressions of it. Um, one of the other things that I, I like to, um, I find it's very helpful, is that it's a, because of the listening quality, it's a very uh, direct bridge from a concentration practice to an insight practice. That as you uh, are able to just listen to your own thoughts and listen to the feelings and the kind of attending, um, it makes it much more able to let the, one, one can hold the, the, the sound, if you like, as a background and then start to see thought uh, a feeling appearing against that background. And so then it becomes much more easy to, to see that uh, those thoughts or feelings as objects and to be able to let go of them and to see through them, to, um, to let that kind of light of wisdom shine through them. So that um, the sort of distinction between samatha concentration practice and insight practice is not such a, you know, a black and white thing or a, you know, apples and oranges, but it's much more uh, as an easy bridge between those two qualities. Also, the last thing I would say um, is that you know, and developing that the, the insight element of it. And again, it's people uh, will you know re- can read all kinds of significance into the the inner sound, the nada sound, just as one can read all kinds of significance into the breath as the sort of the pulse of the universe and the you know the you know the rhythm of the the, the heartbeat of the goddess or. What, I mean, one can do that quite fairly. And similarly with the nada sound, you can um, make a lot of it. Um, and so, but I prefer to, to just um, not get too dramatic. And really, like looking at it as a, um, an attribute of, of the mind-body system. But also, um, having said that, it is a very wonderful and powerful symbol of the unconditioned, the transcendent quality of mind, because uh, again, it's uh, it's ever present. Like if you if you're busy doing other things, you you don't notice it at all. But if you attend to it, it's always there. Um, so so like as a as a symbol for ultimate reality, um, 
it's very effective in that way. It's, it has no particular feature. Uh, it has no edges. It doesn't begin or end. It's timeless. It's not personal. It doesn't, it's not female or male. It's not tall or short, clever or stupid. It's not old or young. It has no color, no shape, no, uh, no kind of attributes of that, of that nature. So that it, it's, um, uh, in many ways, it's like a, um, we can use it as a symbol for that uncreated, unconditioned, transcendent quality of our own being. So some people will say, it's the song of the unconditioned, it's the, <laughs> the whispering of the absolute, it's the, well, yeah, you can call it that if you want, but you know, I prefer just to sort of, you know, not to get too hyperbolic. Because <laughs> what happens is you get lost in the poetry and you miss the practice. You know, while you're busy sort of calling it the song of the universe, you've actually just <laughs> lost track of it, right? <laughs> So, um, but I, you know, I don't want to sort of hamper people's poetic urges, <laughs> or if their inspiration does it does arise, that's fine. But I wouldn't want to just automatically ascribe that to it, or say it's the presence of the unconditioned, or that if you are listening to it, therefore, you know, you're you're listening to the unconditioned. I wouldn't want to go that far. But it's a very good symbol for that. So it resonates the, uh, uh, and helps to arouse the intuition of that quality of our own being, the unconditioned heart, the, uh, the, the, uh, that transcendent aspect of our own being, which is beginningless, endless, timeless, which is impersonal, which is um, kind of pure and simple and um, ever-present. And then also that in exactly the same way, the more that you pay attention to it, um, the more powerfully obvious it is. So that there's this one also finds a, uh, a positive feedback quality to it. So like the more that you concentrate on it, then the more uh, it tends to energize the, the mind-body system. The brighter the mind gets and the brighter the mind gets, the more clearly you tend to be able to hear it. So there's a, there's a positive feedback loop. And sometimes people find they, they wish they could switch it off, <laughs> which can be uh, another issue. Usually you just pick up a newspaper and it, it's no problem. <laughs> but to... Um, to hold it in that way, so that there's a um, uh, like a letting it just be a symbol for that for that inner quality, um, for that, and in that way, it's we can think of it like um, again. This and this is maybe where you can pick up the the Spanish Sanskrit mix. Um, there's a uh, a poem that actually begins John Cage's book Silence. John Cage is a an experimental composer. He's most famous for his silent piano piece called Four, th- Four Minutes 33 Seconds, where the pianist sits with the fingers above the keys of the piano. And the music is actually the sound of the audience, wondering what the hell's going on. <laughs> or the sound of your mind. And, and the reason why he wrote that piece was actually because he went into a, a sensory deprivation chamber and he heard the, the nada sound so loudly, he realized we're never in silence. So that was the inspiration for 433, was actually the, the, the nada sound. Anyway, he wrote this book called Silence. <laughs> and the, the beginning passage of it goes, if you let it, it supports itself. You don't have to. Each something is a celebration of the nothing which supports it. When you remove the world from your shoulders, you discover 
it doesn't drop. Where is the responsibility? So, in this respect, you can think of the nada sound as like representing the, the nothing which supports everything. It's a, it's, a, it's a nothing, but it's a nothing which is there in the background of, of everything. And in terms of the, the uh, as a symbol for the unconditioned, it's like it's representing that, that unconditioned quality which is uh, of being, which is the basis uh, of, of uh, a reality and from which all of the, 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 the somethings uh, are kind of filling that space or, or they, they, uh, they, they, take, they, they catch our attention. But it's rather like we couldn't gather in this room unless there was space in this room. So this, the space of this room is like the nothing which supports the everything of all of us being in here. If this wasn't a space, we couldn't be in here. So that it's like that uh, the sound can be like a symbol for the space of the mind or, or um, also for the quality of awareness that, we, um, that it's, uh, it can be a symbol on the, uh, in the sense world for the, uh, the attribute of awareness. That which is the, if you like, the, the gateway to the unconditioned is, the, is our own quality of, of knowing. That's the, the contact point of, um, of the heart with the, uh, the unconditioned. So um, these are a few of the themes um, for today. And... Um, we can have our first uh, sitting meditation period. If people like to just, if you need to stretch your legs for a, a minute, first of all, then we'll, we'll sit and uh, begin. <laughs> 